We walk by what we do not see. We walk by what we cannot yet taste. What is not yet tangible because God has promised it. We walk by what God has promised. Amen? And verse 2 says this, For by it, by what? By faith, the people of old received their commendation. And we're going to look at Abraham this morning. So go down, please. There's a whole lot of other stuff about Enoch and about the the great heroes of the faith. But verse 8 says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. And by faith he went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, as with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I love that phrase, strangers and exiles. We are all strangers and exiles. This is not the end. This is not what it's about. It's about our heavenly kingdom that God wants to bring us into. It's not as good as it gets. This is nothing, all right? I want to encourage you with that this morning. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He's prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I love the story of Abraham. All right, how many of you used to sing that song at Sunday school? Father Abraham has many sons. You ever used to sing that? I am one of them and you are too and we go marching on. Ever looking blankly at me. Well, I grew up in a Methodist church. We used to sing that. Father Abraham, many sons. You are one and I am two. We are all in the line of Abraham. We are all in the line of faith that comes through Abraham's faith, all right? And there are some very, very important questions that I want to try and address this morning. What is it about the life of Abraham that the New Testament writers, Paul and the writer of the Hebrews and others, that they saw Abraham as so central to the faith that we have? In fact, their theologies are formed around Abraham in a, in a radical sense. Um, why does Paul call Abraham the father of our faith? What can we learn from him? What can we learn about the nature of our salvation? What, is, what does it mean to walk by faith? Everyone's been asking me this thing of, you say we're walking the ancient path and walking by the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, here's a picture of a man walking by the Spirit, Abraham. And if you don't get it this morning, you're going to get it after I've finished. Abraham walked by the Spirit of God. And he heard the voice of God, and he obeyed, and it unlocked the destiny for his life. And what I love about the story of Abraham is that he wasn't a perfect man. Anyone rejoice in that? 
He wasn't a perfect man. He got so many things wrong, and yet God still fulfilled the destiny that he had for his life. If that doesn't liberate you this morning, I don't know what is. He was not a perfect man. And he had these promises for his family. He had these promises for his life. And he kind of meandered through and God led him. And in the end, the promise was fulfilled. And it's exciting. And we're going to look at a number of stages of Abraham's journey this morning. We're going to look at his salvation, which you can find in Genesis 12 and 15. We're going to look at the covenant, which you can also find in Genesis 12 and 15. And later, the culmination of all those things is when he's prepared to offer up his his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and that's Genesis 22, and we probably won't get to that, 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 that this week, but maybe next week we'll get to it on Easter Sunday, which probably will be appropriate anyway, right? And in looking at these three themes with you this morning, I want to, uh, I want to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to liberate you, that the Holy Spirit is going to encourage you, and in my own journey this last couple of years, this story of Abraham has become more and more real to me in my life. And there are a number of things I want to say as we explore those three themes. First of all, he, he walks an imperfect walk. God is perfect. He is not a perfectionist. He's perfect. Secondly, Abraham's walk of faith results in obedience in his life, which is birthed out of grace, the grace of God in his life, which he is responding out of the faith that he has in his heart to what God says. Obedience is the, is the result of that. And thirdly, it is a story of grace. Beautiful. Those three things we're going to explore. It's the unmerited favor of God on his life. He deserves nothing, and God just reaches into his life and transforms him. And we're going to look, first of all, at his salvation. So if you want to go with me to Genesis 12, please. Now, Paul saw Abraham as an example of salvation for all of us. Why do I say that? Because if you read the New Testament, Genesis 15, 6 is a key verse in the whole of the New Testament. It's a key theme of the New Testament. And Genesis 15, 6 says, and he believed, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him, or reckoned is the old-fashioned word, as righteousness. And that means in that moment, he was saved. Abraham was saved as he believed God. Paul says it was credited to him, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he is saved. And there are some interesting things that I want to point out to you as we look at the journey, the text of the journey up to this point where he, uh, this verse comes in, in verse 6. The first thing, there are two things. The first thing I want to say is this, that there's no mention running up to that statement of Genesis 15, 6. There's no mention made that Abraham was worthy in any way to be saved. He wasn't worthy in any way. He simply appears at the end of chapter 11. If you want to go with me to chapter 11, the last couple of verses of chapter 11, here he's not even called Abraham, he's called Abram, and he suddenly appears in the narrative of Genesis. And he's mentioned in chapter 11, verse 27, 29, and 31. And here in, the, in those verses, as you read them with me, we learn that his family was from a place called Ur. And in fact, historians tell us that uh, that town worshipped a deity called Nana, N-A-N-N-A-R, a god that was worshipped in the area of Haran. And in fact, in that whole region, theologians tell us there was no mention that anyone in that region worshipped the God of Israel, worshipped the Yahweh. There's no, there's no mention of that anywhere. So, so, so he belongs to a pagan worshipping community. 
this man. Nothing worthy about him. Nothing merited that God sees. And we see, um, in fact, in, in Joshua t- chapter 24, it says uh, in verse 2, the regions of Terah and Nahal, which is speaking of those regions there, worshipped other gods. And in the same passage, it says, I took your father Abraham out of that land. And God reaches in, just in his sovereign grace, he reaches into Abraham's life, he plucks him out of a pagan culture, and he says, I choose you. How many of you got to test me in your life that you were living a pagan lifestyle? I was living a pagan lifestyle without God, and he plucked his hand into my life, and he said, I choose you. And I got saved. Man, that's wonderful. Bob, it's wonderful, isn't it? You got saved. It's wonderful. God just sovereignly moves in our lives. It's his grace. And then in, verse, in, in chapter 12, if you read it with me, what do we see? God suddenly starts talking to Abram. And it's like the narrative just begins, and he starts saying things over his life. He says, he makes him a number of promises. He says, I will show you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. In fact, I'll read it for you. He said, the Lord God said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Amazing. So God chooses him, and God just starts speaking blessing over his life. And at this point in the story, there's no ethical demand made on Abraham to behave a certain way or to follow any rules or regulation. God just says, I will bless you. That's my destiny for your life. I choose you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless you. And what does Abraham do? Or Abram? He responds and he leaves the land. And that's all that the Bible says he does. So he hears the voice of God. And the voice of God starts speaking to him. And in response to the voice of God, he simply obeys and he leaves all that he knows. And he starts this amazing journey of faith with God. And after that, after his response... God promises some further things. In verse 7 of chapter 12, he repeats the promises to him, but now he defines it a little bit. If you have a look at the language, in verse 7 it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he's defined it. It's just not leave everything and just walk nebulously. No, he says, I'm going to give you this land. And he defines it. And what does Abraham Abraham do? It says in the second half of verse 7, he responds again the promise, the word of God over his life, and it says he builds an altar there to the Lord, and he worships the God who had appeared to him. So there's response in his heart. He's hearing God. I want to say to you, my friends, as as we explore this thing of walking by the Spirit, can I just say this to you? When you hear the voice of God, Hebrews says, do not harden your heart. When you hear the voice of God, the still small voice of God in your ear, respond with obedience, with a soft heart. That's what it's about, learning to walk by the Spirit. When you know God is speaking, He's put His finger on something that you know is Him. In that moment, don't harden your heart. Respond. Let Him take you forward by the Spirit. Again, at this point in the story, there's no mention of Abraham's worthiness. Why should have God chosen him? Why, was God, why did God speak to him? We are never told in the narrative. We're never told. It's simply... This Genesis portion is the root of a theological thing called election. Election is that God chooses you. That's it. 
I think it was Derek Prince who said, we shouldn't ask why God does not, not, does not save all or choose all. We should stand amazed that he should save anyone at all. Have you ever pondered the fact that you were not born Hassan in Afghanistan? Have you ever thought of that, Tox? That's the grace of God on your life. Zach, that you were born in Uganda and you weren't born in communist China, Hao Chi Ping, living at the, the outskirts of, as a peasant in, in Beijing somewhere. Have you ever thought of the grace of God in your life that just the grace of God is manifest that you were born into the family that you were born? No? This is the grace of God. This is the sovereign hand of God on your life already that you won't born into a communist country or into a Muslim country where people are killed that worship the name of Jesus. Thank God for His sovereign hand. Thank God that He chose you, that He chose me. Thank you. Whoever said amen. <laughs> Guys, I'm passionate this morning. I don't apologize for being loud. If I'm loud, Andrew, turn it down. All right, because i got to preach this morning. And Abraham responds, all right? Abraham responds, and Paul calls that response in Romans chapter 1 verse 5, Paul calls that the obedience of faith. The obedience that comes from faith, not from law, not from following the rules, the obedience that comes from faith. And in fact, the verse says, um, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name amongst the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. That's what Romans 1 says. In chapter 12, this obedience to God's word causes him to leave his family. And in chapter 13, we see he, he and Lot separate a little bit. Uh, not a little bit, they separate there, but he's moving a little bit further into the promise that God has for him. And again, God's promises are renewed to him in chapter 13. If you go and read verse 14 to 17. Again, there's no mention of Abraham's worthiness. Are you getting it? Yeah? Second thing I want to say. And this is absolutely crucial. This whole story of Abraham happens 430 years before the law is given to Moses on Sinai. Have you got it? This is pre-Moses by 430 years. This is pre the law, which says you do these things and you follow this and you do. It's pre by 430 years. And this is what Paul says is the example to us of faith. Before the law even came. Yes, please. He's not responding to the law. He's not responding to anything like the law. What Abraham is responding to is the spirit that is speaking to him. He's responding to the voice of God. He is a man who's already walking by the spirit. Already. 430 years before the law is even given, he is walking by the spirit. He is hearing the voice of God. He's saying, God, whatever you tell me, I will obey. And he obeys. He doesn't obey perfectly, and that's the beauty of the story. He gets a lot of things wrong, but he obeys the voice of God, and God unlocks his destiny and his future. Can I clarify what I mean by the law? Because this has caused so much confusion in the history of the church. And so much is thought of as law that is simply not law. Can I tell you that all the commandments of the Bible are not law? And we are expected to obey. Not, they're not law. They come by conviction from the Holy Spirit. 
Can I, can I define what I mean? Love your neighbor. Is that, a, is that a law? Love your neighbor. That's what the New Testament says. Is it a law? No, but it's a command, isn't it? It's a definite command. Love your wife. Is that a law? Can, can anyone force me to love Helen? Is there a penalty if I don't love Helen? Do I get my head chopped off? No, I don't. It's my choice. It is not a law, but it is a command. Right? It's a very important distinction here because people just throw this thing at everything in the Scripture that demands a response from us and say it's law. It ain't law. All right? When the Bible talks of law, it defines it in the following way. Can I give you five little things? It is a written code. It is something that is written down or memorized. That is law. It is inflexible. If it was... uh, Inflexible, it wouldn't be written down. It is, it is, it is, it is uh, inflexible, it is distinct, it's precise. If it's not distinct and precise, how can it function as law? All right? It also has a penalty if you break it. So that's why you read in Genesis uh, 20, what, what is it? I can't even remember now. If, it talks about the curses and blessings. If you follow Deuteronomy, what is it? 22. I can't remember, it doesn't matter. But there's a penalty if you break the law. All right? If you do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, I will curse you. That is not the gospel. The the Bible tells us in Galatians that the law was put in place because Israel's hearts were so hard. Because of their sin, God put the law in place as an interim measure. And the law is completely fulfilled in Christ and it has nothing to do with us anymore. That is it. I don't care if people have told you that you need to be uh, half Jewish. They are wrong. You don't have to follow the Feast of Tabernacles. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You're welcome to eat pork until it comes out of your ears. You are free in Christ. You don't have to be circumcised as a man. You don't. This is not the gospel. The gospel that I'm preaching to you is the gospel of Paul. It's the gospel of Jesus. And it says, we are free from all of those things in Christ because he died for our sins. He was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. All of the law was laid upon him on the hill of Calvary. And once and for all, he took the full penalty of all that the law demanded. And because of that, you and I are free. No more law. Nothing. I got that off my chest. It's true. We live free. And we live walking by the Spirit. Can I say that the law is different from a principle? And that's why I want to make it quite clear. There's a principle of love. Would you agree in the New Testament? That ain't a law, all right? Discipline is not a law either. Can I explain what I mean? Self-discipline is something you pose on yourself. So I run because I like, I don't want to, when I'm old... I don't want to suffer from high blood pressure and diabetes. I don't want to have a heart attack when I'm 55 because I'm so overweight that I haven't taken care of my body. So I impose discipline on myself. And my discipline is that I go to the gym and I get up and I run even when I don't feel like it and I watch what I eat. I can't impose that on any, anybody else. It is not a law. It is a discipline that I impose upon myself because I see there's a greater freedom that I want to enjoy in my life. I still want to be preaching when I'm 95. And so I'll take care of this body. Are you with me? That is not law. That is self-discipline. It's not the same thing. 
And when we look at the life of Abraham, we see this man who's amazing response to God is just generated from this passion in his heart. And there are certain principles that guide his life, but he's being responsive in faith. He's responding in faith. He's hearing the voice of God. It's not obedience to what anyone else has prescribed and written down and said, do this and do that. He's free. He's responding by faith. There's no legal system, like I said before, the legal system that was given to Moses on Sinai happened 430 years later. It didn't have anything to do with Abraham. Are you getting it? I know I'm laboring it, but you've got to get this. Genesis 12, the first three verses, are simply the promises and the revelations of God's will for Abraham's life. And he responds in faith to those things. And faith leads him to leave his family to leave his land, to leave his tribe, and God leads him on this amazing adventure. Can I just say this to you? He's about 75 when he leaves his birthplace. You know, Isaac, in Genesis 20, it's five chapters in the Bible, Genesis 22, when he sacrifices Isaac, most theologians agree Isaac was somewhere between 20 and 30 years old. Do you want to do the math? It's about 40 to 50 years that he walks imperfectly until God fulfills the destiny that he has for his life. 40 to 50 years. We don't like that, do we? It seems so long. We wait a couple of months. Oh, six months. God, this is so hard. You've left me, Lord. Abraham, the father of our faith. 50 years plotting. Just like, God, I'm going on. And then he gets everything's wrong. God promises. I'm getting ahead of myself. But anyway, Genesis 15. Let's just look at Genesis 15. I know I'm going very fast, but we're going to look at these things over a couple of months, right? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. After what things? Well, if you read Genesis 14, two amazing things happen. Lot gets kidnapped with his whole family. By, and there's this big battle that happens, and the king of Sodom, they go and fight together, and Abraham goes to help rescues his, his cousin Lot and comes back and this amazing thing happens. The, the, the king says to him, no, you can't have any of the spoils of the war, but um, you know, keep the people and take the spoils. And, 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 and Abraham says, no, 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 I came, for, I came for my family. I didn't come for any of this stuff. So I don't want to get rich by the spoils of war. I'll just take what I, what I, I came for. And then he gives one-tenth of all that he has to the king of Jerusalem, Melchizedek. Before the law, let me be politically correct. Yes, he tithes before the law because he's a generous man. <laughs> Not because anyone told him to, but because he just said, oh God, I love you so much. And he gives. Wow, that's a challenge, isn't it? And uh, God comes to him and says, Abraham, I am your shield. I am your great reward. Abraham said, oh Lord. You see, this is why I love Abraham. He's always like this, always like he hears the promise. And it's like, God, I hear you, but you know, I'm... I'm I'm doubting a little here. How many times have you heard the voice of God and you doubt? It's okay to doubt. That's what faith is. Faith is exercising what you believe about God above your doubt. That's what it is. All of us have doubts. I have doubts daily. And faith is overcoming those things. It's believing and walking by what God has promised, not what by what you see. Isn't that true? Oh, and he says, why does he doubt? He says, because I'm still childless. God, haven't you noticed? I haven't got an heir yet. And the heir of my house in Eliezer of Damascus, and Abraham said, 
Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. God comes to him again, just reassures him again, says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. How ridiculous is that? He hasn't even got one, not one seed yet has produced any life. And God says, look up at the stars. And there are billions. And he says, that's how many offspring you're going to have. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? It's delightful. It's God. Only God can do that. Oh, well, I find it exciting. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, how am I to know that I, I shall possess it? You see, he's always got these, these nagging things in his heart. And when we read chapter 15, it draw, again, it draws attention to Abraham's faith, but nothing else is mentioned. There's no obedience to the law that helps him to make him righteous in God's eyes. You see, that's what the law does for us, isn't it? If we just follow the laws, we feel good about ourselves. Hey, God, I'm helping you. I mean, you, you are so lucky to have chosen me because, man, I, I'm a good bloke. Man, you're so lucky God to have me on your side, really. Thank God for me. I mean, I, that's the attitude, really. I'm, I'm, I'm hamming it up a little, I know. But that's really why we like to think that we've had something to do with salvation, that we've brought something to the party, because we like to see, think that there's something good in us. The only thing that is good in us is that we are part of God's creation that he loves. That's it. And he's, he wants to go after to redeem his creation. And he, God so loved the world that he gave his son. But in, in, my, in me, in, there's nothing good about me. Ask my wife. There's nothing good. Apart from the grace of God, there's nothing good. So Genesis 15, we come to this amazing statement, verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. The very fact that Abraham believed God, was believing, was the thing that what God counted as righteousness. And straight after the statement again, Abraham is, in, is again informed of the main purpose of why God called him. And you see, it's not just about Abraham. Isn't that beautiful? When God saves you, it's not just about you. It's not just about your family. I don't get it when people start separating themselves and all they want is their little family to be okay. I don't get it. That's not what God, God never saved us just for us and our little family. He saved us so that we can be those that are in the community, being salt and light to the community so that other people can come to Christ. That's why he saved us. And here you see that in, in, in Abraham's life, Genesis 15, verse 7, he says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. The underlying purpose of Abraham's salvation was that God was choosing him and the faith that he, he responded in because he had a, pers- a purpose and a plan for the nation of Israel. They were still to come. He said, I've given, I want you to possess this land. And underlying all of this is that God had a redemption plan for Israel, for his people that he called. And again, look at the uncertainty in Abraham's heart. Verse 8, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? It's an understandable thing. He's, he's saying, oh, I recognize you've given me a future inheritance, but Lord... How do I know? And God makes this amazing covenant with him, right? And you can read it there. And the covenant is given to Abraham simply to deeply reassure him of the promise that God had given before in Genesis 12. What comes at this point of the story is Abraham's request. He's saying, Lord, I hear you, but I I need deeper assurance from you. 
How many of you ever had points in your life where you say, yes, Lord, I hear you, but please give me some deeper assurance? Anyone? I've had many moments like that. I hear you, God, but please, Lord, just something to reassure me more deeply. It's like this thing of faith and doubt. They're like, they're tugging at your heart all the time. How can I know? That's his question. It's it's saying, Lord, I want some more reassurance from you. And then God... um, makes this amazing covenant with him. And the, the, the animal is cutting to and he walks between the pieces and all that wonderful stuff. Can I just say to you now, again, that it, can you see any request of obedience that God demands of Abraham? Can you see any? Can Find me a verse that says, God said to Abraham, for this to happen, you must obey me. There's no request of obedience. There's Abraham's obedience of faith where he responds out of what he hears God saying. But God doesn't, at this point, doesn't demand obedience from him. In in chapter 17, verse 1, there is a request for obedience. obedience. Uh, It says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So there there was a, uh, later God says, actually, uh, I want you to be blameless before me. That's chapter 17. But at this point, no request, no demand from the Lord for obedience. And in Genesis 22, when he offers up his son Isaac, there's a confirmation and God says, I see that you have not withheld anything from me. I see the obedience on your heart. And so there's confirmation of the obedience that Abraham is walking in, but God doesn't demand it from him. Isn't that amazing? The grace of God. So, that's the first things I want to say about Abraham's salvation. Nothing worthy about Abraham. It's all an act of grace, sovereign hand of God in his life. Nothing to do with the law whatsoever. Nothing to do with the law. And secondly, the second point I want to talk through with you is this imperfect walk that Abraham had. And this just, I just chuckled every time I read this and meditated upon it. And I looked at my own life and saw how many mistakes I've made. And you know what it did? It just... It just made me feel strong again. God is not a perfectionist, but God is perfect. God does not demand perfectionism from you and I. We are perfect in Christ. We walk by the Spirit, and He changes us from one degree of glory to another. Man, that's the most liberating thing on the face of the planet. Abraham's walk of faith is full of detours. (laughs) How many of you have taken some detours in your life? Anybody? Yeah, you can put your hand up because it's okay to be, I, I want us to be honest with each other, a community of believers that are honest. Anyone thinks they're perfect, I want to say to you in front of everyone else, you're a liar. <laughs> Amen. We are all just criminals under our own hat. We are all sinners saved by Christ. That is it. Every one of us, let's get on and admit it. I was, I was, uh, you know, you know, alcoholics get up in an alco- alcoholic anonymous meeting and um, they say, my name is Ant and I'm an alcoholic. That's how they introduce themselves. You know, it'd be so refreshing if the church was a place where people introduced themselves like that and just owned up to their sin. Hi, my name's Ant. I'm a gossip. Pleased to meet you. <laughs> God's changing me, but that's my problem. That's my problem. I can't control my mouth. I just, it's just, just but God is changing me. Wouldn't it be refreshing if people just owned up to their problems? But we don't. We like to come all religious on a Sunday. I'm perfect. 
So, let's look at Abraham's story, right? Chapter 12, verse 10. Abraham's called by God to go to Canaan. And what does he do? Can you believe this? <laughs> this made me laugh. He gets nervous because there's a famine. God said, I want you to go to Canaan. He gets nervous because there's a famine. So he goes down to Egypt. And he's married to a stunning woman. And you know, he's like, I can't understand. Uh, imagine I did this. Take my wife, Helen, we're going on holiday to Egypt. So, oh no, she's beautiful. You know, the Pharaoh is going to want, he's going to want her as his wife. So you know what I'm going to do? I've got a problem. I mean, Abraham's always trying to make a plan. So he says, oh no, okay, I'll pretend she's my sister. That's what I'll do. The father of our faith goes to Egypt and he says, I'll pretend she's my sister. And then if Pharaoh has her, it won't bother me anyway. And so that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh sees his wife, sees she's stunningly beautiful, takes him, takes her to be his wife. And what happens? The whole household is struck by disease. And so Pharaoh comes to Abraham and says, what have you done? You lied to me. You knew that she was your wife. She knew that she was beautiful. And you lied to me. And you know what happens? You read the end of the chapter. He leaves Egypt in absolute disgrace with his tail between his legs. The father of our faith. It's all right to mess up. Uh, it is. Am I preaching license? I, I hope. I hope not. I hope the grace of God is the thing that enables us to say no to ungodliness. But you know, we all make mistakes, and here I am, the biggest sinner of all. I've made some mistakes. He's called to lead his family. We see in Genesis 13. He's slow to disentangle himself from his family because what is the point of Genesis 13? Lot is still with him. Lot is still with him. And God said, I want you to leave your land and your family. And he didn't get it right immediately because Lot is still with him in Genesis 13. And what happens? They, they are now so wealthy that they've got all these flocks and they've got all these herds and stuff and there's not enough grazing. So they go in to the land and Abraham says, we need to separate now. Lot says, fine. He says, I'll choose the nice bit. That what, that's what Lot says. Amazing, the nice, bit also, the nice bit also includes Sodom and Gomorrah, which is not a nice bit, really, is it? But he sees with his eyes what looks good and fertile, and he says, I choose that. And, and Abraham, beautiful portion, says, the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, now you, you lift up your eyes, and you look where I say, and everything that you see, I will give you. Isn't that beautiful? The one motivation is selfish, just taking the best for himself, and actually it leads to his destruction, it leads to Lot's destruction, and yet what is in Abraham, God's heart for Abraham, he says, now you lift up your eyes, and everything that you see, I'm going to give you what you see. God is always generous, always kind, always benevolent, always has our best interests at heart. Jason, God has your best interests at heart, but he has. Even though things are difficult at work, I want to tell you, it's got your best interests at heart. And you know what? This is an amazing thing. How many of you have been generous in your life and given generously to the kingdom, and then you have doubts about financial provision for your life? Anybody? This is a beautiful thing. Chapter 15. God says to him, I am your shield. Why is he saying, I am your shield? Because you know why? Because he just fought this battle and he'd been schneid by the king of, of Sodom. That's why. And so God's saying, no, no, don't worry. I'm your protection. I'm your shield. 
He had just been generous to Melchizedek. He had just given one-tenth of all that he had to Melchizedek. And now there's some doubts that are in his heart. And he's kind of saying, oh God, are you going to provide for me? And you know what God says? He says, I am your very great reward. Do you want to know what the word is for reward? Take a guess. Just take a guess. Salary! Sakar, S-A-K-A-R. God says to him, I am your salary. I'm your very great reward. That's why I'm trying to say to you this morning, how many of you are under pressure financially? Anyone in this place? Raise your hand. I want to say to you, in faith, if you will believe God, He will be your salary. He will. He promises it. He's your father. You are His son. He will be your salary. Amen to that. Context is one of Abraham's generosity. And I want to say to you, when you have a revelation of the grace of God, generosity is an automatic overflow of that revelation of the grace of God. When you understand how generous God has been to you, it affects every area of your life. And it seems after the battle that the king of Sodom had deprived him, and, 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 and he still gives a tenth of what he has to the king of Jerusalem, and God reassures his doubt. And I want to just say again, this thing of generosity, this, I want to be politically incorrect here. We don't even like to use the word tithe anymore. Well, I want to say that 430 years before the Lord was in, in Abraham's heart to be a generous man. It was in his heart. It either is in your heart or it isn't to be generous. And you can tell, have, want to have someone say, you need to give this or you don't need to give this. If it's not in your heart, it's never going to be given. That's it. God is your safety. God is your provider. God is your protection. God is your shield. Either we believe it or we don't. I love the story of the gospel coming to Zacchaeus. And I think I've shared this before last year, but I just want to revisit it again. Zacchaeus, the hated, thieving, dirty little thief. The uh, arch tax collector. The, the lover of money. The man who gave his whole life to consuming and getting as much of it as he can. And he experiences the grace of God. How does he experience the grace of God? Because Jesus comes to him. And what does Jesus say? He says, I choose you. I choose your house above every other house. I choose to come and be with you. And suddenly Zacchaeus goes, Bing! The kingdom of God is coming. This man chooses me. And it's just like he begins to see a lot of stuff about himself. In, in a real sense, it was Jesus who invaded his life. So you know that song we sing, I found Jesus? Well, I'm not so sure that we should sing it. Because actually Jesus finds us. He does. He finds us while we are dead and while we are dirty, rotten scoundrels, dead in our sin. He finds us and he plucks us. He says, I choose you. Kaylee, I choose you. Grant, I choose you. That's what he says. And when Zacchaeus begins to see that, his whole spiritual understanding begins to unravel. He understands he, wasn't, he didn't deserve to be chosen. And that's the gospel. And then what happens to his money? And this is the wonderful thing, because he so loved it. He was so passionate about it. I mean, if he was alive today, he would be a hedge fund manager. He would be. He, he would be down in, in, the, in the mile there, just consuming and getting the biggest bonus that he could. Don't worry what's happening to the rest of the country as long as I get my 68 million. Isn't that the Lord, Lloyd's TSB guy getting 68 million bonus? Got that off my chest. 
So he realizes that for him, money is the issue. And I want to say this to you. You know, some, for some of us, we want more money because it's an issue. But you know, if you are always concerned about lit- how little you have, money is still an issue for you. <laughs> it's true. If we're always concerned about how little we have, well, money is still ruling us, isn't it? Because what does Paul say? Paul says, no, I'm, I'm happy. I've learned to be content when I have much, when I have little. Content, being content is the main thing, isn't it? So what does Zacchaeus do when the gospel comes? He he agrees to give away 50% of his income to the poor. Man, when the gospel comes, it's always more than the law. Because the law, what did the law demand? It said, give 10%. Give 10%. Just do your 10%. Put it in the tithe thing, 10%. And and Zacchaeus, no, no, the gospel comes to him and says, I'll give away five times that. Then you know this man is free. The thing that has ruled him for all of his life, he is free of. He is free from the power of money over him. He just says, it's got no power over me anymore. Five times I give to the poor. It's not good. It's absolutely, incredibly, amazingly good. That's what the gospel does. Oh. And what else does he do? Um, he had ripped people off. Uh, he had um, stolen from them. He had extorted ex- more tax than, than he should have. And what does he do? It says, uh, I'm just trying to find it in my notes here because I'm way off my notes. Um, he gives back 300% more than what the law said. Because if you look in uh, Leviticus 5.16 and Numbers 5.7, it instructed if you had stolen anything, you had to pay it back with interest. And the interest that you had to pay it back with was 20% interest. What does Zacchaeus do? He gives back Four times that, 300%, the gospel changes everything. (laughs) It does. It just absolutely fundamentally changes everything. So I want to just say to you, the key for me is seeing by faith that God is our provider, like he did with uh, Abraham. As Abraham was generous, generous to Melchizedek, not giving into fear. And that's why I want to try and, what I'm trying to do this morning is, is let the Spirit work on your heart that you set free from fear. Set free from fear in this economic climate. Set free from fear, man. God is your provider. He's going to look after you. He's going to bless you. I don't care what the economic projections are. <laughs> that's not good news to you. Okay. There's another story I just wanted to share with you, which is a terrifying story. How many of you want revival, right? Anyone want revival here? Anyone want signs and wonders, miracles, healings, the power of God in every time we come together in a meeting? Now, you know I've set you up, haven't I? Because there's a terrifying story in Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira. It's in the context of revival. It's in the context of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And you know what God does? He kills people. He kills Ananias, and he kills Sapphira, his wife. Why? Because they, pre- they were pretending to be more generous than they really were. We want revival, right? We want the Holy Spirit to come. We want power. Well, we better, we better also just uh, be careful that our hearts are pure. <laughs> These guys pretend they're more generous than they are, and they're struck dead. A friend of mine, Finney, just did you see, he said, when revival comes, we're going to have to print T-shirts that say, I survived the offering. <laughs> I survived the offering. I was honest. 
I made it through the offering. That was just a joke, okay? My point is this, my friends, this morning. Abraham, he doubted God's financial provision. God says to him, I'm your salary. I want to say over you, every one of you this morning, by faith, that God is your salary. If you'll trust him. If you'll put your eggs in his basket, right? By faith. Abraham has doubts about his childlessness. He says, it's a repeated theme in his life over and over again. Genesis 15, 2. He says, how can I know? How can I know? Oh, of course, I missed out the whole, the whole thing of, of how, how can I do that, of, of Hagar. In fact, if you go and read the story, right after the covenant is made, the very next chapter, the very next chapter after the covenant is made and God has made this amazing promise with him, he goes out and he says, I will make a plan. I mean, God's just promised him. God's made it as clear as he possibly could, and he's still in his heart. He's like, oh, okay, I've got to make a plan. I know what I'm going to do. Hagar, my slave. In fact, his wife comes to him and says that, and he says, okay, I'll sleep with her, and I'll produce a child. And he does, and we know Ishmael is born, right? And it's 14 years after Ishmael is born, still another 14 years before Isaac is born. He's always trying to make a plan. He's always, he's always trying to help God along with his plans and his purposes. How many of you feel like you, you might do that in your life? I've done that in my life as well. But the point is, he has doubts about his childlessness. It even leads him to do, do stuff that is wrong. He has doubts about his landlessness. Genesis 15 verse 8. But for me, what is so amazing about the story of Abraham is that when God makes the covenant with him in chapter 15, up to that moment he has shown faith, but it's not faith that's free from doubt. It comes before, it comes at a point before obedience has been invited, like I said, out of Genesis 17 and before Genesis 22. But his faith is not perfect. Does that not encourage you? That we can just walk this walk by the Spirit and God, his plan will come into fruition in our lives. It's a walk of faith for all of us. There are twists and turns. We're going to make mistakes. We might deviate slightly, but we don't walk by what we see. We walk by what God has promised. As I was chatting about these things, Nick sent me a text this week, which I wanted to share with you. And by the way, they are down there in Southlands um, ministering this morning. And uh, please remember them as they minister today. It's a guy in Steph's church, a church that they're building friendship with. And uh, please pray for them this, this morning while, while they're down there. He, said, he wrote, sent me a text which said this. What you are under pressure is what you are. How many of you heard that statement? What you are under pressure, that is what you really are. Okay? This statement sometimes referred to the toothpaste tube an- 